The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Good morning, Bethlehem. Good morning to all of those here and to those of you online. It's a real joy to be with you this morning. I don't preach very often, but when I've had the opportunity to preach in local church plants or churches needing pulpit supply in the area, I've always begun the same way with greetings from Bethlehem Baptist Church. And every time afterwards, someone will come up to me and just express their gratitude for how Bethlehem has supported their church or how they grew during their time at Bethlehem Baptist Church. So I really have two joys this morning. One is the joy to bring back greetings to you of gratitude from so many around the Twin Cities. God has prospered your faithful work here at this church and borne good fruit across the Twin Cities. And the second joy is that it's a joy to be preaching to my home church for the first time. I've really uh, enjoyed partnering with all of you these last 10 years in the gospel uh, here at Bethlehem. And so I'm very happy to be doing so again as your preacher this morning. Uh, So let's go to the Lord and ask for him to continue to prosper the work here at Bethlehem. Heavenly Father, you are a good and gracious Father. You have given us the grace to come to know you as our King, as our Savior. And so, Lord, we ask this morning for more grace, grace to grow in godliness, grace to see with greater clarity your Son as the risen and resurrected King, as the one who has saved us and who's coming back. So, Lord, help us to see through your work in Paul, in the book of Acts, uh, your providential plan for your people. Help us to see so that we can trust in you, so that we can hope in you. I pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So for the last two years, we've been in and out of the book of Acts, and we've seen uh, the true story of God's work amongst the early church to proclaim his gospel across the world. We've titled the series, The Church on the Move. And like the ripples from a stone hitting the center of a pond, so the people of God have gone out from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, proclaiming the gospel. And I think it's worth remembering as we approach the end of the story here in Acts that the church has moved not under its own power. It's not like a robot that's able to move itself, but rather like an organic body that is being led by its head, by Christ, who is the head of the church. Remember what Jesus says in Acts 1.8. You will receive power by the Holy Spirit when he comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. The church is on the move because God is on the move. Aslan is on the move. By the power of the Holy Spirit, God is moving through his church to proclaim his gospel, to gather his people, to enjoy him forevermore. And that is great news. 
It's true back then and it's true today. So I think this incredible story of the early church that Luke tells us highlights that God's on the move because he wants to cultivate and strengthen our hope in God. Luke repeatedly shows that despite all the setbacks, imprisonments, stonings, shipwrecks, that God is still for his people. He works through his church to proclaim his gospel. And so I think Luke, who is an excellent storyteller, is inviting us to keep asking, what just happened? How did that happen? What's going to happen next? How did the gospel spread throughout the whole world? What's going to happen to Paul, who's in prison right now? These sorts of questions every good story invites. And that's because good stories read by good readers force us to ask good questions. And this story is no exception. It invites us to come and see. To come and see not only what happened, but why it happened. Luke not only has a history to tell, but a message to share. And I think the central question that Luke is wanting to ask us to ask of this passage is, what is this hope that Paul has? Luke wants us to see Paul's hope and to understand why he hopes. So it's worth pausing here at the beginning for just a moment to really understand what we mean by hope. Paul Tripp, I think, helpfully defines it with three elements. Hope involves desire, an object, and expectation. I think kids really help illustrate this for us because you can imagine uh, their hopes are very clear. Like, I hope we get to have ice cream after dinner. Or, I hope there's time to watch a movie. And these sorts of hopes are true for us too. All of us have desires to be loved and appreciated, to experience comfort and pleasure and so on. And we, uh, these desires fuel our hope in particular objects and they give us expectations. So we have uh, desires that a person or thing might uh, be met, but might meet our desires. And those desires also have expectations about when and how and in what way uh, our longings will be met. So hoping, I think, is at the core of what it means to be human. And so it's no surprise then that every good story involves some hope. And here in this story, we're trying to understand what motivates Paul, what motivates people in the story and what they're hoping in. So we have to ask good questions to unpack their hopes, what's motivating them. And so I think we'll see as we go along that good stories reward good readers who ask good questions. That's why the outline for today is structured around three questions that I think will lead us up to the main point. First question, why does Paul appeal to Caesar? Acts 25 what the center of that passage is this question, why is Paul appealing to Caesar? Second question, what is this hope that Paul proclaims? 
in Acts 26, especially verses 1 through 29, Paul is centering his whole defense around this hope. So what is the hope that he proclaims? And then third, who will set Paul free? By the end of Acts 26, the very last paragraph, Agrippa announces that this man could have been set free. And we're left wondering, who is going to set Paul free? And I think these three questions and trying to answer them build up to the main point of this passage. That God providentially works through Paul to proclaim Christ's death and resurrection as the hope of the world. God is working through Paul, his church, to proclaim Christ's death and resurrection as the hope of the whole world. So we'll work through these questions in order. And we're not going to be able to go verse by verse through the whole passage. Otherwise, we'll be here past lunch. So thank you to Damien for reading it so well. I'm relying on that and you're listening uh, as I work through the passage. Let's begin with the first question. Why does Paul appeal to Caesar? Before we can really answer that question, I think it might be helpful to answer a few prior questions that you might have. Because if you're anything like me, when you're reading through a story and you take a break and then you come back to it, you're asking, what was just happening? This last fall, we were reading to our kids The Hobbit. And we would you know, usually read a chapter of night and it ends with a cliffhanger. And then we might take a break for a few days and come back to it. And everyone's thinking, why were the dwarves in barrels floating down the river again? Oh, that's right. They were escaping from the forest elves. So I'm assuming that similarly, you're feeling like, why is Paul in prison again? Why is he appealing to Caesar? What does it even mean to appeal to Caesar? So let's, let's ask a few prior questions before we answer the main one for this first section. Let's start with why is Paul in prison? And I'm going to give you a straightforward answer and then try to unpack why that is true. Paul is in prison because the Holy Spirit is preserving him so that he can proclaim the gospel not only in Jerusalem but all the way in Rome. Luke has told the story from the beginning of Acts about the Holy Spirit empowering God's people to proclaim the gospel to the whole world. And I think in this last section of 10 chapters from chapter 19 all the way till chapter 28, Luke is showing how God moves Paul all the way to Rome to proclaim the gospel there to Jews and Gentiles and possibly even the emperor. So let's briefly review the key moments that get Paul into a Roman prison in Caesarea. Feel free to listen in. You don't have to follow along uh, because I'm going to be given a number of passages. But here, first, in Acts 19, 21, Paul declares that after answering the call to preach the gospel in Macedonia, modern-day Greece, he says, I must also see Rome. His ambition is to go to the center of the Gentile world to proclaim the gospel. But the Holy Spirit constrains Paul and calls him back to Jerusalem. Paul tells the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, verse 22, And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Holy Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me there. So, Paul knew 
as he was headed to Jerusalem, that he was headed to prison. And when he arrives in Jerusalem, it only takes about a week before a Jewish mob tries to tear him apart. And he's rescued from that mob by the Roman tribune and put in prison. And here we begin to see God's providential plan unfold for Paul to make it to Rome. Paul's being attacked and in prison gives him opportunity, gives him a platform to proclaim five different times his own story and the gospel through his story. So why is Paul in prison? Because God has providentially placed him there in order to proclaim the gospel in Israel. We know this especially because God tells Paul this in Acts 23 verse 11. He says to Paul, wise in prison, take courage for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. God has been working to bring Paul back to Jerusalem so he can get him to Rome. And Paul knew because of the Holy Spirit telling him that he would be imprisoned and afflicted in Jerusalem. Yet he went, he went there despite that warning because he was ready to die for the name of Jesus. Think about what Paul says in Philippians 2. To live is Christ, to die is gain. Paul believed that truth. He lived that truth. And we can notice too how God is preserving Paul through placing him in a Roman prison. It's the Roman tribune who rescues Paul from the Jewish mob and from the Sanhedrin later on, and also from the ambush that the Jewish leaders sought to lay for Paul. Prison preserves Paul's life. So now we can get to the main question at the beginning of Acts 25. Why does Paul appeal to Caesar? We remember the beginning of Acts 25, Festus is trying to get right to work as the new governor to please the Jews. It was Felix, the previous governor, who had kept Paul in prison for two years. And now as Festus arrives, the Jewish leaders ask him for a favor. And since he's headed to Caesarea, he says, wait, I'll sit on my tribunal seat there and judge Paul. And as he comes in, he recognizes, I think as a smart politician, a smart leader, that Paul is a potential pawn to win the favor of the Jews. Jews were a particularly hard people to rule for the Romans, and so Festus is trying to win their favor right at the beginning. So after the Jews accuse Paul of many and serious charges that they couldn't prove, Paul, in beginning of chapter five, 25, argues for his innocence under both Jewish custom and Roman law. And then when Festus asks if he wants to go back to Jerusalem, Paul says this, verse 10, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews, I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I'm a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Paul here is exercising his Roman citizen's right of appeal. Just like earlier in the story, 
Paul announces his Roman citizenship and avoids a flogging from the Roman soldiers, so too here Paul uses his right of appeal to avoid being sent back to Jerusalem and likely another ambush or at least a kangaroo court in Jerusalem. Paul, however, doesn't seem to be motivated by avoiding death. He says he doesn't seek to escape death. In Acts 21, he had said he's willing to die in Jerusalem. And here he says, I'm not trying to escape death. So then why is he appealing to Caesar? What's he trying to do? I think there's, there's two reasons. First, Paul appeals to Caesar because he wants to go proclaim the gospel in Rome. And imprisonment will take him there, right? The second reason, I think, is that Paul realizes that to go back to Jerusalem, there's no good there. He's already proclaimed the gospel there. So it's not out of fear of death, but rather desire, ambition to make it to Rome that Paul appeals to Caesar. So Festus agrees, you've appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you shall go. But he realizes, I think shortly after, that he has a problem because he has no legitimate charges to indict Paul with, right? He says, you can go to Caesar, but what am I going to tell Caesar? So thankfully for Festus, along comes Agrippa. And he tells Agrippa the story of Paul, and Agrippa agrees to listen to Paul's defense. So here we see again God orchestrating Paul's imprisonment to provide a platform for proclaiming the good news of the gospel. And this leads us to our next question. What is this hope that Paul proclaims? What is this hope that he's on trial for? Yes, that's right. He thinks he's on trial because of the hope he has. Notice what he says in verse 6 of chapter 26. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers. And for this hope, I am accused by Jews, O king. So here we can start to piece it together. Paul is on trial because of his hope in the resurrection. Notice the question he asks next. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God can raise the dead? It's the resurrection hope that Paul is on trial for. But it is a more precise hope than a general expectation for the resurrection. He shares that general hope in the resurrection with the Pharisees. Remember how when Paul proclaimed when he's at the Sanhedrin council that he hopes in the resurrection and they all go ballistic? It's because he shares that hope in the resurrection with the Pharisees, but not the Sadducees. And they start fighting one another, right? But his hope is more specific than the general hope that he shares with the Pharisees. And this hope is what Paul shares in his conversion story, which he tells next. He was a Pharisee opposed to those who believed in Jesus. He denied Jesus' resurrection. Yet that same Jesus confronted him on the road to Damascus, converted him to faith, 
and then commissioned him to proclaim the good news to the Jews and Gentiles. And now he's carrying out that commission, even though he's in chains in Caesarea. Notice here in verse 22, how he declares to King Agrippa and all the other Jewish and Roman elite that are gathered there to listen to him, the precise hope that he has. Verse 22, I stand here testifying both to small and to great that the uh, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. This is the ground of Paul's hope that Christ has risen from the dead. His hope in future resurrection is built on the past resurrection Christ. And that risen Christ proclaims salvation, light to all of us, to the whole world. Light that shines into the darkness of our sin and says, it is finished. Your sins are paid for. Light that blinds the dark schemes of the devil and says he is finished. He is bound. Light that defeats the darkness of death because on that resurrection Sunday 2,000 years ago, a light brighter than the sun shines forth from the open tomb and out walks the righteous and resurrected Son of God conquering sin and death and Satan. This is our hope, Bethlehem. This is our hope in the resurrected Christ. He is risen from the dead. It's not Easter Sunday, but we can say it. He is risen from the dead. Amen. Christ has risen. And for Paul, this is no hazy hope. This is no slim chance, a mere possibility. Paul's hope is secure. He is confident in the future resurrection of Christ because he believes Christ has risen from the dead. He banks on Paul or God's future promises because he's seen God's past promises fulfilled. We know this through Paul's own story, which he keeps on sharing every opportunity he has. The hope of Christ's resurrecting power has sustained Paul through shipwrecks and snake bites, through stonings and imprisonments, Paul has banked on the fact that Jesus is real and he is resurrected. And not only that, that he's coming back. Jesus is coming back. I think there's a lesson here for us. That's this, that hazy hope doesn't sustain you through trials. Hazy hope doesn't embolden you to testify. Only hope grounded in the fulfilled promises of God, in the resurrected Christ, will sustain us through trials, will embolden us to testify. So what should we do if our hope feels hazy? Well, we should first recognize exactly why our hope is hazy. Sometimes... It's our desires for God that are weak, that are being replaced by desires for other things. We're no longer seeking to be satisfied by God 
and his promises to us. We start to hope in that promotion at the end of the year. We start to hope in that romantic interest that we have or in the children that we would love to welcome to our family. The good things of the world become the main things in our life rather than the hope of Christ. That hope becomes blurry. That's when our expectations begin to shift. We begin to think about the promises of God in the same way that we, be, we think about the promises of a friend or a boss or a spouse. And that is, they're uncertain. They're not definite. But God is not like that. His promises are sure. They will come to pass. They have, they are, and they will. God is not like other people. God's promises are sure. So don't mistake hope in Christ as hope in something of this world. So if your hope is hazy, as mine often is, if your desires for God are weak, if your vision of God is blurry, or your expectations for God are low, then plead with God to awaken stronger desires. Seek to know and love the Jesus through, love the Jesus of the Old Testament promises that came and fulfilled them in the new. Go, listen to those promises and marvel at their fulfillment. The same God who fulfilled the Old Testament promises to send a Messiah is the same God who promises to resurrect us on the last day. And he is the same God who sustains his people now through whatever trials and tribulations we may be facing. So go, be with the people of God and watch God sustain them so that you might hope in your own sustenance through that same God. And be emboldened to proclaim his promises to others. We can see how God emboldens Paul here in Acts 26. Go back to verse 24. There Festus interrupts Paul and says, Are you out of your mind? This great learning has driven you out of your mind. But notice how Paul responds. I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I'm speaking true and rational words. This is a true story I'm telling of the resurrected Christ. It really happened. He really did walk out of the grave. And then he turns to the king. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. And then Paul says something that must have shocked them. Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, King Agrippa, but all of you would become like me, except for these chains. Here's this man in chains telling the governor and the king, I wish you were like me. How bold is that? This is the hope that emboldens Paul to speak such in such ways. I want all of you, all of you, whether great or small, to become like me, to follow Christ. Christ, he's saying to them, is your hope. Not Roman legions, not pagan idols, not religious practices. Christ, the resurrected one, is who we must 
hope in. And here is, I think, what we need to remember, Bethlehem. We have the same hope as Paul does, the same message. We can say to our friends, do you want a hope that can sustain you? Do you want a hope that is secure? Do you want a hope that will never disappoint? Hope in Christ. Hope in the resurrected one. The one who has fulfilled promises is doing so now and will continue to do so. I think the reaction that Paul gets from his bold declaration leads us to our final question. Who will set Paul free? Throughout the last five chapters, Paul has come close to being killed by a mob, torn apart by the Sanhedrin, murdered by a Jewish ambush. Yet God has preserved him through the Roman prison. Nonetheless, I think we're expecting as readers, and I'm sure Paul was expecting, maybe even hoping, that he would be set free by someone. He's making his case for his innocence. And I think Luke, and how he's been telling this story, has been building our expectation that Paul might be set free. Perhaps it'll be the Roman tribune. Okay, maybe Felix will set him free. Oh, he's done. Maybe Festus will set him free or King Agrippa. But each time that expectation is not met, we look to someone else. And now maybe we think with Paul, oh, it'll be the emperor who sets Paul free. And I think by the end of 26, chapter 26, uh, perhaps you're feeling like I felt when I read it recently, a twinge of disappointment Because notice what King Agrippa says. If this man had not been, had not appealed to Caesar, we could have set him free. I think we might be feeling the disappointment. And yet how much more would Paul be feeling that disappointment? Being passed around from a tribune to governor, to the Sanhedrin, to another governor, hoping that he might be set free. And then after two years in prison, He appeals to Caesar and misses perhaps the opportunity to be freed by King Agrippa. And in that disappointment that I'm sure Paul experiences, my admiration for him only increases because the deep ballast of his hope in Christ carries him through changing circumstances, unexpected twists to his story. It shows all the more that Paul's hope is not in kings or councils or governors, but in Christ. His hope is not in an earthly freedom that will end when he dies, but in an eternal freedom that will never end. His hope is not in his Roman citizenship that might get him a pardon from the emperor, But his hope is in his heavenly citizenship that has already granted him a pardon from his king. And not only that, but adoption into the king's family. This is a much greater hope. And it's so easy for me, I think for us, to hope in wealth or power or pleasure or security and not in Christ. Those hopes are uncertain. Christ is certain. And so Paul and our hope is secure. It reminds me of Jim Elliot's famous and memorable phrase, he is 
no fool to lose what he cannot keep, to gain what he cannot lose. Paul may have lost his earthly freedom, but he will never lose his eternal freedom. And so to give you a little preview of what's coming next week, we learn in the last couple chapters that Paul's never set free in the book of Acts. Luke ends his story in the last verse of Acts saying, while Paul is still in prison, yet proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. God got Paul to Rome through his imprisonment, never released him as far as we know from the book of Acts. And that's exactly where God wanted him. In his plan, he placed him there. So who will set Paul free? I think here the message that Luke wants us to hear is clear. God has already set Paul free by raising Christ from the dead, defeating sin and Satan and death. Paul is no longer a slave to his sin, no longer under the power of Satan's sway and no longer under the threat of eternal death. Paul may be in physical chains at the end of Acts, but he is free and proclaiming freedom to those who have ears to hear. So, These physical chains are real, but they can't hold him. God has providentially used Paul's imprisonment to proclaim Christ's death and resurrection as the hope of the whole world. Paul's hope in Christ's resurrection continues to this day, and we have the opportunity to believe and share that same hope. So, in closing, I want to speak to three groups of people. First, if you do not yet know the hope of Christ, let me invite you to become like Paul, to become like those here who believe in Christ, who hope in the one who has risen from the dead and will raise us from the dead when he comes back. If you do not yet have that desire or if it's only an ember, plead with God to blow the breath of the Holy Spirit on that ember, to awaken desires for him. He is the all-powerful one who promises to set us free for eternity. And the gospel says to hope in the one who has conquered death for us and offers us eternal life. If that's any of you here, I'd love to talk with you afterwards, or you can go to the welcome desk in the back and chat with someone there. We'd love to get to know you. Second group of people, Let me say to those of you who may be suffering or experiencing trials like Paul, God often uses seasons of suffering to clarify the object of our hope, what we are hoping in. So let Paul's story remind you that God is present in your suffering. We have a God who suffered and died, and he is near us in our trials, ready to bear our burdens. We may not see God's providential plan as clearly in our own circumstances right now, but let Paul's life remind us that God is caring for us too. And also, I think as God gives you strength in those trials, let Paul's story 
encourage you to look for ways to proclaim the hope that he has given you. Whether it's in a hospital room to doctors and nurses or to your boss and coworkers when you're laid off or to family members in the face of the deep loss of someone in your family. Proclaim the hope that God has given you in Christ. Tell your story. Share your hope. Finally, let me speak to those of you who feel hopeless. To those of you who hear me say, hope in Christ. And you think, I can't do that. I don't have that. Hopelessness doesn't mean that you don't have a desire. Doesn't mean that you aren't even clear about the object. But it's your expectation that's low, that you don't expect to be met. You might believe God is good, but he's not powerful enough to help me in my circumstances. Or you might believe God's powerful, but he doesn't see me. He doesn't love me. So let me encourage you to lean on and learn from the hope of others. Don't fight hopelessness alone. God has given us his church, his people, to walk with us when we feel we don't have hope or joy. So lean on your brothers and sisters. Allow the Christ in their eyes to be big when Christ in your eyes is small. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, oh, how good you are to rescue us from our sins, to call us to new life in you, to transform us day by day, even when we can't see the change. Lord, we trust in you. And today we ask, give us hope. Give us hope in you because we know that you're coming back. We know that we can bank on the fulfillment of your future promises. Teach us to do that, Lord. Give us the grace to do so. Help us to learn from one another as you sustain all of us through this life. We ask this in the name of Jesus, the resurrected Son. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.